When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate's Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Bowl and Branch, making luxury bedding affordable and convenient to order from home. Right now, get $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping when you go to bowlandbranch.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. It's not bro time, it's go time edition. It's Wednesday, July 8th, 2015. On today's show, Magic Mike XXL is the sequel to the Soderbergh film of almost the same name. This one is directed by Gregory Jacobs, and of course it stars Channing Tatum, the bro to end all bros. And then What Happened, Miss Simone is the new and I think quite astonishing documentary about the great singer and pianist and songwriter and activist Nina Simone. And finally... What has happened to the American actor? We discuss a provocative essay by Terrence Rafferty in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. Joining me today is uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. And uh, filling in for Julia Turner today is Slate's own Magic Mike himself, (laughs) Magic Mike Pesca. How many times are we going to make that joke today, Mike? Well, I'm just going to do the little pirouette and head shimmy to, uh, okay, (laughs) I just did it. It's radio, but trust me, I did it. I love the pull-away sweats. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and the big scoop neck shirt. <laughs> Steve, you're up in your Ghent bureau, so you don't know, but Mike is actually rocking the no shirt look mm-hmm. right now. So except for the breakaway fireman's thong, I don't see anything at all. <laughs> he is the only man I know who can rock a six pack on the abs and have one tucked under his arm. <laughs> <laughs> for later. <laughs> all right. Um Anyway, of course, we're referring to Magic Mike XXL, which came out this past weekend. It didn't exactly kill at the box office, but it is uh, very well liked by critics. It stars Channing Tatum as the eponymous Mike, who now finds himself a mom-and-pop style entrepreneur, but is lured back to the world of male entertainment. Uh, Why don't we listen to a clip? Look, I love you guys. This trip has been ridiculous and amazing. So please do not make me give the whole, it's not about how we go out there and do it. It's about getting to go out there and do it together speech that I just gave you. What are you? You're not a fireman. I'm a male entertainer. Oh, yeah. What are we? Male entertainer. Come on. Hey, 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 hey. Hold that up. Hold that up. Look, it's not bro time. It's show time. Are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. Come on. Let's do this. All right. Well, Dana, as that clip made painfully obvious, I totally blew the uh, line there. She says it's not bro time. It's show time, not go time. Anyway, we'll all survive this uh, sorry incident, I'm sure. But um, I remember all of us basically liking the first Magic Mike. It seemed to be a kind of commentary, slightly veiled commentary on the state of American masculinity and a time of recession and 
gender confusion. What did you make of this one? As I remember, Steve, you swooned for the first Magic Mike. I think you loved it more than any of us. You not only thought it was wildly entertaining, but you thought it was like a profound think piece about the beginning of the 21st century or something. I sign on to that. I loved it, too. I think at some point, maybe guys like Steve and I were congratulating ourselves on how much we were loving this. Hey, I'm open-minded. I could get down with a male stripper movie. I mean, to me, in terms of just pure enjoyment, I preferred this to the first movie. It's less substantial, obviously. It is essentially a lark about five really buff dudes taking a road trip with a lot of great dancing in it. But at least it didn't have a main character who was boring and unlikable. It's gotten rid of Alex Pettifer, I believe was his name, the guy who played the young kid new to the scene. Oh, there was the that female whole drug love story. interest was terrible. Some people loved her. She had that Soderbergh thing. Soderbergh loves inexpressive rock-like women, and she had that kind of Oh, I thought she was just the studio head's daughter or something. (laughs) Cody Horn was that actress's name. She certainly had an unusual style of delivering her lines (laughs) affectlessly. Not Um, seen since. (laughs) Cinema not been kind to Cody Horn. (laughs) <laughs> but so she's out of the scene, and so is that young main character. And we really focus on the stuff that's the most fun, which is, you know, these five stripper buddies and their hijinks on stage. Mm-hmm. Mike, what'd you make of it? I hated this movie, and I loved um, the first Magic Mike. Radical. I thought, I thought that this movie... Well, first of all, it didn't have Cody Horn, so I thought that it would, and, and the kid named the kid. So that would be a benefit. But it definitely had a hurdle to overcome in that the most charismatic, Channing Tatum's great, but of course, the guy who played Dallas. Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey is absent from this movie. And that's, at least on paper, going to be a huge loss. And it was. I thought the first movie was not only a commentary on economics one of those real one one of the movies where economics aren't just you know driving the plot or affecting character decisions i mean it's really woven throughout so much of the movie in a really accurate way i think i mean i responded to that but i also think the first movie was a great piece of sociology and this was just frippery and that's fine but I would at least, you would at least like it to have the structure of, okay, we're building up to a big final climactic scene where it's a competition, although we found out that Stripper Thong 15 <laughs> isn't actually a competition. It's just an exhibition. Please, no wagering. But you would hope it would build up to something where the final showstopper really stopped the show. And it was pathetic. The dancing that went on, except for, you know, Channing Tatum himself, but three of the other four dancers had just, I think, awful routines. And that's, at least in the first Magic Mike, you could see where the routines were funny and exciting. And when well, the women second, in the audience but, said, woo, you would th- they seem like mm-hmm. more accurate that woos. That final dance off, which I don't, I'm not going to give away the kind of secret of it, because to the extent there's any suspense, it's what are the final dance routines going to be, yeah. right? But that final dance off, not dance off, but paired dance between yeah. Channing Tatum and Stephen Twitch Boss, who's yeah. the guy that they meet along the way on the road, who is a former So You Think You Can Dance contestant. I don't think he won, but he's a fantastic dancer. Anyway, I don't think you can fault that for not having incredible choreography and execution. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was great. I just mean leading up to that where the other yeah. members of the team got to dance while making candy or got to dance while pretending to be a painter <laughs> felt but, pretty flat. But that was not about the dancing. That, of course, was about you know the utterly, granted, ridiculous but very sweet theme of the movie, which was expressing yourself through stripping, right? That they, got, they literally <laughs> threw their firemen costumes out the window on their road trip and decided we must devise dances that suit our own... Characters. So that's the slightly thin conceit of the movies that for one last hurrah, they're going to recreate the same old tired routines that don't connect with their inner emotional core. And Channing Tatum calls bullshit on this and encourages them along the way on the on the long road trip down to the stripathon to find their inner male entertainer and a sense of vocation and 
do a different kind of performance. And because that's absurd, the finale doesn't have much drama, though I disagree with Mike and agree with Dana. I think it has a lot of, you know, pizzazz and and the dancing is pyrotechnically wonderful and kind of great to watch anyway. But what I think this movie is, is a couple things. One is that, first of all, I think it's a, a road movie. So the finale is mostly around the destination. It's the journey, not the destination, right, Mike? As Mike always says to me. As you're road tripping, taking Molly, throwing your thongs out the window. It's a bunch of bros in a Froyo truck at first and then eventually in some fancy convertible making their way from point A to point B. And I think the road portion of the movie is built around two rather amazing set pieces that made me fall in love with this movie as hard as I fell in love with the first one. The first set piece is is the one in the establishment owned by Jada Pinkett Smith. And um, I think if you just go back and look at it as a piece of filmmaking, it's technically extraordinary because it is a completely strange environment to these mostly white dancers in a completely black environment and they feel out of sorts and what happens to them in there is is filmed in an extremely naturalistic way and you feel immersed in it as they are immersed in it and you go through the same sort of interior journey that they go through within that space which is over time you begin to see how incredibly cool and wholesome and connected the community with in those walls is via the relationship between these women and these male dancers. And then Dana, help me out. The young gentleman, African-American gentleman who joins their group is just an incredible performer. And oh, Donald Glover. You mean Donald Glover. Okay, that's Donald Glover. Like the guy Sorry, who drives them the rest of the yes. way. Yeah. And, the, and the scene where he's driving and talking to Channing Tatum's friend who fancies himself a healer, that scene's <laughs> just an extraordinary scene. It's worthy of 70s cinema and then the second set piece is the one in Andy McDowell's house where he reconnects with this woman Channing Tatum reconnects with this woman that he's met earlier in the road trip and those slightly older women who feel like discarded wives you know kind of confessing the extent of their sexual alienation and pain to these young men again it's just an amazing set piece it's an incredible piece of very relaxed and naturalistic seeming cinema that took a lot of attention to detail to film and and pull off and then the second thing I would say about it as a genre piece is that in addition to being a road movie, I group it with American Gigolo and Shampoo, these 70s movies that are about highly sexualized men who are also lost and also feel emasculated for having to self-sexualize in order to become relevant in the world. And that to me just remains like a kind of disorienting but very apt psychological portrait of the condition of certain men. And I think it's a really interesting movie. I mean, it's frivolous in many ways. Wait, wait, wait. How are you connecting it to American Gigolo and Shampoo? I'm sorry. Are you saying it's different? It's the same? It continues in that tradition? Well, I think it's more like Shampoo than it is like American Gigolo in that in Shampoo, Warren Beatty does something seemingly socially frivolous. He's a hairdresser. He's entrepreneurially ambitious, but thwarted, as these men are. And he uses his sexuality as a way of making money and finding a degree of self-fulfillment that he can't in his life otherwise. And that's both masculating and emasculating, right? He's both kind of at the service of women and he's trying to figure out what that means. And that's the same basic structure of American Gigolo, even though there's a noir, a really profoundly disturbing and violent noir mystery at the heart of American Gigolo, the same struggle is at the center of it, which is Richard Gere is a highly, 
highly fetishized sex object for rich women. And this gives him a kind of suave power, but it also emasculates him because he's at their beck and call. And I think that's what the men at the center of this movie are trying to work out about themselves. And that's actually kind of an interesting thing for them to be thinking about. I think if you want to layer that on top of a movie that didn't explicitly or I think even implicitly present that, that's fine. Probably coming more <laughs> from the first movie. And I don't think that the shots inside Jada Pinkett Smith's bordello where apparently Michael Strahan worked. I didn't really realize that until the credits. But uh, I would have liked Jason Stratham also. But... Uh, some of the shots were fine. Statham. Statham, Statham yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sorry. Uh, some of the shots were fine, but I think on a script level, if you talk about stakes, there were none. If you talk about obstacles, um, at one point they say, hey, we could just rent a car, and then that's quickly brushed aside. No, let's go on a series of adventures. But you know what? Hey, it's a road movie. <laughs> You're They're on the road. I know, but they could have rented a <laughs> Wait, car. Wait, but can I speak to this emasculation thing? <laughs> yes. Because I actually think that the opposite is presented by this movie. I guess you Whoops. could go back to the first Magic Mike and say, it's not exactly emasculation, but it's about guys trying to get out of stripping, right? This is a movie about a bunch of strippers having their last hurrah with stripping and celebrating what it meant to them in this sort of final stripper con that they're going to and uh, and it seems to me that that's presented as a, that that being a masculine sex object for a bunches of screaming women throwing onesies at you is this very sexually and even almost personally empowering thing in this movie. No, and it's no. a movie all about. Wait, let me finish my brief disposition Don't here. Empower her. <laughs> I'm so Don't. oppressed. <laughs> Don't remasculate me. <laughs> I mean, this movie, I think this is, A.O. Scott's review really focused on this, and I think he really kind of nailed it. It really is sort of a celebration of female pleasure in a way that the first one wasn't. I mean, there were definitely hordes of screaming women in the audience in the last movie, but I feel like especially in the in the scene of Jada Pinkett Smith's Pleasure Club, by the way, let's note that her name was Rome, so apparently you have to be named after a major city to be some sort of stripping manager in the Magic Mike world, because there's also Paris, <laughs> who Elizabeth Bank plays later in the Dallas, movie. Paris, and Dallas, Rome. Paris, yeah. and Rome, yeah. But, to me, those scenes were all about, you know, essentially about the, the joy that the women experienced, which was not just sort of writhing sexually, but also giggling. There's a lot of laughter around stripping in this movie. And I love the way that pleasure and laughter and the body were treated in this movie. I completely agree mm-hmm. that there's practically no conflict, but that's a summer movie thing. You know, I mean, a movie in which there's no major stakes is, is a certain kind of a summer road movie that comes out every summer and we all enjoy. But wait, let me just disagree with you and A.O. Scott a little bit, which is that what did they all do in the first movie? They were sort of blue-collar dropouts in the age of deunionization. What did they all do in the second movie? All of them have a creative class aspiration that is being thwarted, and they all look at the stripping as the thing they have to do because their artisanal froyo isn't taking off, their healing isn't taking off, their music career isn't taking off. That's a very different spin on the theme, and what Channing Tatum comes into the group and reminds them is, no, Actually, giving these women pleasure has a noble aspect to it, and it is at least in part your vocation. Therefore, let's not do the stale routines. Right. So you're making my point for me. No, I'm saying that they don't initially see their delivery of female pleasure as ennobling. They see it as slightly degrading and the thing that they do for, you know, simply for money. And he comes in and says, no, you're, you're not a fireman or a policeman, you know, in your routine because you don't want to be one in real life. Connect up what we're about to do with what you actually desire. Right. So the trip is about moving from a more alienated vision of what stripping is as a job to a more fulfilled vision. Although, be it noted, it's not their job for the majority of this movie, but their avocation because they're just going to this stripper con yeah, for fun. Yeah, it's true. Apparently. What doesn't hang together at all? What can yeah, I say? I think that the possible 
paucity of logic and the flaws uh, overwhelmed the point. I mean, to me, you were looking at this movie, Steve, and it's great that you took away from it, but you were looking at it a, a little bit like a piece of abstract art. It, this stuff that you're finding wasn't there, I don't think, <laughs> except for you to read from it. And that's okay, but... Oh, gosh. I think that, if anything, how empowering. Think about what those, what were there in the last scene? 1,500 women in a room watching truly terrible routines, going crazy, showering these guys with, it wasn't just one or two dollar bills. They made it rain a, like it was a deluge. I would like to read the first person piece of an extra on the set that day. It must have been a terrible experience. If you th- I think if you think about this movie too hard, there's nothing too empowering to either sex. Oh, I loved it. It's filled with pathos. Uh, genius. It's Laventura for um, for our time, Mike. And one day you'll see this. But um, <laughs> I didn't. Wanna, I didn't want to end this segment without mentioning Dana's wonderful piece about Channing Tatum, the star of the film, and uh, really a unique American talent. Dana. Talk to us about Channing Tatum. Yeah, well, you know, doing an assessment, it was essentially not a review of the movie, but a career assessment of Channing Tatum made me encounter a lot of Tatumositude, either through his movies or through just online clips of him at press events and things like that. And the thing that impressed me most watching, you know, him from sort of step up on or even some some earlier stuff than that is that he is a true dancer. He is really, truly like Michael Jackson, like Beyonce is one, I think, like an entertainer who doesn't just sort of learn some moves and look good moving to the music, but, you know, can really sort of create choreography from their body. And in a way, I like the dancing in the first Magic Mike movie better because it was less choreographed. You know, there's some really astounding technical choreography and dancing, as you say, Steve, in this movie. And he still manages to make it look incredibly spontaneous. But I love to see him with dance when he's just goofing, when he's just goofing off. And believe me, if you go to YouTube and look for Channing Tatum dancing, you can see him dancing at parties, at press events, at, you know, he just loves to jump off things and turn backflips and dance. And uh, and there's something so riveting about watching him dance, even when he's surrounded by other very good dancers. It's one of those things where he's the one you can't take your eyes off. All right. The movie is Magic Mike XXL. It's in theaters everywhere. It's being watched by no one. Um, but I loved it. <laughs> really? Go it see had it. a bad opening weekend? That sucks. It's tons of fun. Everyone go see it. Don't listen to Magic Mike Pesca. <laughs> <laughs> or do, and then thank me. <laughs> <laughs> and let us know what you think at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Dana Stevens, what do we have? This week, Steve, we are sponsored by Bowl & Branch, which is a company that makes organic free trade bedding and sheets and other cloth items. And uh, I had a little story about Bowl & Branch, actually. Can I tell it? Oh, my God. Absolutely. I just I can really legitimately endorse this company this week, even having not yet slept on their sheets because I had such a good interaction with them. After Julia talked about it a couple weeks ago on the show, this company sounded so good to me and the sheets sounded so pleasant that I, I went to order a pair online, but I forgot to order my promo code. and I sort of accidentally bought the sheets at full price, right? I then wrote a note to their customer service line saying, hey, I host a show that advertised your sheets and I forgot to put in the promo code and can I still have my discount? And I proceeded to get, within hours, a response from the CEO of the company, a very nice man, who not only gave me my discount, but, you know, sent me a bunch of videos of their sheets being made in India. And I mean, their fair trade thing is completely down the line. Like, they're not checking off a box. It just seems like a very sweet, ethical company. And I'm very excited to sleep on their sheets, which arrived yesterday. So that's my personal endorsement of of Bowl & Branch. But they're not made out of actual bowls and branches. <laughs> well, the name is kind of confusing. I will say that bowl, B-O-L-L, is not a word that comes up a lot in everyday vocabulary. Do you know what a bowl, B-O-L-L, is? Well, I had just assumed, Dana, that it was a reference, that it's a tree thing, right? Bowl and branch. Because the end of the Yeats poem, 
among school children, which goes something like, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? Oh, man, of course you've got a Yates reference in your back pocket on that one. I try to top you with my bowl vocabulary, and you go me one better with Yates. How do they spell bowl, though? It's B-O-L-L, which I assume is how Yates spells it, which is like a seed pod, mm, like a cotton no. bowl. No? Yates spells it like mole, B-O-L-E. Oh, well, then we got to look that up and see if there's three different spellings of bowl. This is B-O-L-L, and it's sort of like a, a, a seed pod where the cotton is, right? When you see a field of cotton, it's the blobs that look like cotton balls. And I think other plants produce bowls as well. All right, etymological digression <laughs> aside, let's get back to the offer at Bowl & Branch for our listeners. So if you go to the Bowl & Branch website right now, they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. So you go to bowlandbranch.com, that is B-O-L-L and branch.com, and use the promo code CULTURE to get your $50 off toward a sheet set. Bowl & Branch is so sure you'll love their sheets. I'll be able to confirm this next week after I've slept on them that you can try them risk-free for 30 days. So again, that's bowlandbranch.com. Use the promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, back to the show. Thanks, Dana. Okay, moving on. Nina Simone was born, and I didn't know this, was born Eunice Wayman in the Jim Crow South. She trained as a classical pianist as a young girl, mastering Bach, Brahms, and Debussy. A local fund was collected to send her to Juilliard. She was then turned down for more classical study elsewhere, simply for being black, and then her money ran out, and she had to go to work. She didn't want her mother to know she was playing, quote, the devil's music in bars, so she changed her name to Nina Simone and became maybe the greatest soul and blues singer of all time. She's certainly up there, up there with Billie Holiday and others. She played a very, very fine, elegant piano over which she laid a beautiful, buttery baritone voice. She really is, in my mind, one of the two or three greatest talents this country has ever produced. Uh, now someone has made a documentary. The director, Liz Garvis, has made the documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone, to answer exactly that question, what happened to this astonishing talent. Let's listen to a clip. I've always thought that I was shaking people up, but now I want to go at it more, and I want to go at it more deliberately, and I want to go at it coldly. I want I want to shake people up so bad that when they leave a nightclub where I performed, I, I just want them to be peaceful. He told me, he told me all my life, he said, keep on working, girl. They open up the door. One of these Mike, I, uh, I'm curious to know what your experience of the music of Nina Simone was before you watched this documentary, but also how much of the story that you knew. I knew only little bits and pieces of it. I mean, for one thing, the revelation that showbiz really was never a choice for her. She just needed the money. She wanted to be a classical musician and really out of necessity became the person that we know as uh, Nina Simone. What do you make of those? Those two questions that you asked me are absolutely at the heart of my understanding of the movie, which is that I didn't know that much about her. I mean, her name, if you had said it to me, six months ago, I would say that song about Mississippi, right? Damn you, Mississippi, I, I might say. I might recall the song has great melder of jazz and blues and pop influences and definitely someone who walked the walk in terms of civil rights. All of those things are these little strands of my understanding were, were expanded upon, but 
they also led to such uh, fascinating avenues. And I thought the documentary was pretty rote when it came to the dutiful things of chronicling a person's life up until the point where they became to be known, although a lot of that stuff was necessary. But then where it went from there, this the reason it was fascinating is that her life is fascinating. And was she the logical product of a time that was a crazy making time? Or was it that she had her own bouts with mental illness, which is certainly true to what do we describe that? Her circumstance, just nature, how much credit should we give her? Certainly a lot, but then how much blame should we give her? She seemed, you know, the biggest narrator in the movie is her daughter and she acted monstrously towards her daughter at times. So she became throughout the movie a more compelling figure than I ever would have imagined. Mm -hmm. Dana, really the same question to you. I imagine you must have been a Nina Simone fan before you saw this movie. What did you learn? Yeah, I mean, I think probably maybe more of a fan than Mike and that I could, you know, name a few of her songs by title and recognize her voice when it comes on. Honestly, she is not one of my favorite jazz vocalists. I know, Steve, that you're going to send thugs to my house to beat me up because I dare to question the, the primacy of Nina Simone among my favorite jazz vocalists. I recognize her importance as a singer and a musician, but there's something about... Maybe it's just the kind of material she sings. Like, she's a heavy, heavy singer, right? She's, she's not a singer who sings many love songs or ballads or brings very much humor to her singing. I mean, I realize that that's her thing, but there's just there's a kind of a, a block-like, solid sculptural quality to her singing that isn't always what you want to put on. Although then I'm thinking of the end of uh, Before Sunset, where Nina Simone's song plays the role of a love ballad um, quite beautifully. This documentary taught me tons about her life. I knew really nothing about it at all. I do think that this documentary is very conventional made and not formally interesting in any way. And there were many moments when I thought that was a great piece of archival material you just showed us, but, you know, I would like you to to go deeper. The, the, the director, Liz Garbus, I think treats her with a lot of reverence, you know, which is which is her her due. But then at the same time, as you say, Mike, in, in interviews with her her child or her ex husband, there are some some views of her that are not so complimentary. And it's hard to I don't think that the, the documentary quite grapples with how to to make the person mm-hmm. and the artist make sense together. I suppose I was glad that it wasn't a formally daring documentary. I wanted to hear the story and I didn't really want to feel the hand of the director. First of all, I do think, I mean, my opinion for what it, what it's worth, t- to really fall in love with Nina Simone, you have to begin with the early Nina Simone and listen to Little Girl Blue, which is just, uh, to my mind, is one of those, it's one of five or six albums that I can only put on so often I find it's heartbreaking and I, and I never wanted to lose its power. I mean, I you know, there are a couple of Bill Evans records I feel that way about, a Nick Drake album I feel that way. But I mean, it's just music that has a kind of force and delicacy together that's a little overwhelming, but you want it to always sound fresh. Like the idea of it going stale is just too excruciating, and so you don't listen to it that often. But that to me is absolutely in the pantheon with the best of Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and on and on and on and on. And that said, I think it's really important to say what she was unique at, which is that she was a classically trained, highly disciplined pianist, which this documentary seems to me to make almost irrefutable and almost Mozart-like virtuosity when it came to music, that there's an extraordinary moment towards the end of the film where the person who really becomes her guardian towards the end of her life and revives her career somewhat witnesses her live one night playing a different song underneath her vocal 
almost, I mean, it really is almost like Mozart from the Salieri movie. I mean, doing something that a normal human being not only can't do, right, that's completely out of the question, but can't even really conceive of doing. And he proves the point by playing the tape. He recalls playing the tape at the time to Miles Davis, no slouch himself. And Miles just can't understand sort of physically, but also technically how she's accomplishing what she's doing. I mean, she's essentially playing Bach beneath an American songbook song. And so she had a very unique, really genuinely unique talent, which came out of her classical training. The thing that I didn't know about Nina Simone was that really this is the story of how she was enraged twice over, first by her rejection of the white classical music culture, you know, after having been raised to live nowhere but within it, right, which was sort of the first wounding tragedy of her life other than being born black in Jim Crow South. Uh, So the second one, I should say, but then the next was that she had a violently abusive husband who was her helpmate and bodyguard and business manager, but also her tormentor. And so when the Birmingham church exploded, she exploded along with it. And she brought to that explosion more than just, one would say, advisedly only the normal amount of righteous anger. It it was a kind of exorcism for all the abuse that she'd suffered at many different kinds of hands. And in a sense, Mike, the second half of the movie is about a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And there are some great quotes. Al Shackman, who was her guitarist, her sideman, this white guy now, I guess, in his 70s or 80s, who recounts that she told Dr. Martin Luther King, I'm not nonviolent. And he said, that's okay, sister. (laughs) And so she was so, I mean, this is a word that's thrown around and to have become almost meaningless, but she was so authentic. And you could just make this, as far as the, um, not how this documentary wasn't formally daring, you could have made a really satisfying documentary just linking her appearances, just linking archival footage with a couple of notes of explanatory text. And I thought the most amazing piece of footage was she was at an outdoor concert. It was when she had this hairstyle that actually looked like an antenna, if you remember that. And she was just exhorting the crowd. Are you ready for violence? Are you ready to get up in it? Are you ready to throw off your shackles? And it was a call and response thing. Immediately after that, it was comment. The husband commented, "You know, this is when she became totally uncommercial. She was just doing. Did he use the phrase these patter songs? You know, she was just expressly political. She didn't even try to have a hit, even though he said, you know, she wanted what Aretha Franklin was getting in terms of accolades and appearances on primetime television. But she was just living the fight. It was amazing to see. And where the uh, documentary falls down in terms of being not formally interesting is." I do think it relied on the daughter who herself just had so many phrases that were filled with cliches like the mom had her demons and, you know, it was she her house uh, where she was neighbors with Malcolm X, apparently. Her house in Mount Vernon was like a fairy tale. So it relied too much. It's not the person's fault. She's not a professional narrator. But this interview with the daughter gave us some material that seemed a little bit rote, especially given, you know, how crazy the life of Nina Simone was. And that life it was really crazy. I mean, this is part of the story I had never encountered before. It is incredibly sad. She moves to Liberia, her career essentially having fallen apart in the United States. She believes she's found a higher plane of existence in Africa, but she really goes into an emotional tailspin. Anyway, I don't want to give... Um, too much of the documentary away, but the Paris years are the ones that are by far and away the most uh, heartbreaking. I really knew none of this. Um, Dana, what do you make of the relationship between 
her mental illness and her politics. Yeah, that, you know, that's, for example, is an area where I wish that this documentary had interrogated further. When I talked about how it could have been formally more interesting, I don't mean that it should have been, like, cooler and had more kind of stylish touches or something. In fact, I thought that those reenactments of her as a young girl at the piano were the cheesiest part of the documentary and that, you know, all the archival material was fine. But I think some things like, for example, as you say, what you might argue was some kind of convergence between her, you know, extreme black militant beliefs and, you know, her essentially defecting from the country to Liberia. Right. And and Paris and kind of creating this alternate existence for herself. I think because the documentary was so reverent and so in love with Nina Simone as a musician and as an activist and as a cultural figure, there weren't many travels down the darker paths of her life, except in ways that made her look good. I mean, I I obviously don't want this documentary to be tearing down Nina Simone, but I would like to understand better what happened to her. In fact, this title, What Happened Miss Simone, is taken directly from a Maya Angelou article about Nina Simone written during her lifetime. It was in Red Book magazine. I think. And it was a profile by Maya Angelou. And the title, I believe, was What Happened to Miss Simone? Because Angelou had some hard questions to ask to her and, and about her and about her career and her beliefs. And I'm not sure that this documentary is interested in going down those paths. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike, uh, we should wrap up, I guess. But it's important to remember that there was a sense of pub- almost sort of public and collective nervous breakdown during this period in the 60s and early 70s. I mean, Joan Didion went through something like a public nervous breakdown and then turned it into art in the White Album. And slashing towards Bethlehem, do we hold a black artist to a different standard? Well, you know, also let's remember that it's not just a personal nervous breakdown. I mean, I think the movie or maybe it was supplemental material that I read offered a diagnosis of bipolar. So I don't know if this would be nervous breakdown. And then you have the uh, daughter's accusations, perhaps more than accusations, that she was uh, routinely abused by her mother. So, yes, that could be called nervous breakdown. But you know, at some point you begin to lose sympathy for someone who does it to the point where the daughter moved back with her abusive father just to get away from Nina Simone. So that is cannot easily be, de- well, maybe it can be described as, but it's complicating. It's complicating in a way I think that the documentary was a little bit uncomfortable with to echo what Dana was saying. By the way, the Red Book article is available. I Googled it. I found the Facebook posting. Nina Simone, High Priestess of Soul uh, by Maya Angelou, Red Book, November 1970. Just goes to show Red Book hasn't really changed. I love that Maya Angelou wrote for Red Book. Those were the days of women's magazines. She also had like helpful hints about getting out stains. Yeah. (laughs) 110 ways to look sexy this summer. (laughs) All right. The documentary is What Happened, Miss Simone. It's uh, directed by Liz Garbus. It tells the story of the really extraordinary Nina Simone. Uh, Watch it, listen to her, and tell us what you think at facebook.com slash culturefest. And coming up, we're going to be talking about the decline of the American actor. Hi, this is James Ledbetter, editor of Inc. Magazine. If you're into anything at all related to technology, entrepreneurship, and cool companies, you should listen to our podcast, Inc. Uncensored, where we talk about, well, technology, entrepreneurship, and cool companies, as well as drones, robots, green funerals, latte art, and moon mining, along with just about anything else that hits the like button of the fine people who write for Inc. Magazine and Inc.com. You can subscribe to Inc. Uncensored on iTunes.com panoply or on your favorite podcasting app. Ah, right. Moving on. Is it time for American actors to take a hard look in the mirror? So asks uh, the terrific film critic Terrence Rafferty in the Atlantic Monthly. He goes on to say, earlier this year, Michael Douglas mused darkly to a magazine interviewer. I think we have a little crisis going on amongst our young actors at this point, which is a a statement that Terrence Rafferty apparently agrees with. He goes on to point out, Dana, this rather extraordinary roster of 
not just British actors, but British actors playing American characters, and not just British actors playing American characters, but playing iconic historical American figures in these big biopics like Selma. So, for example, Martin Luther King was not played by an American actor. Neither was Coretta Scott King, Governor George Wallace, nor President Linda B. Johnson. They were all played by Brits. That Surely this is this speaks to some kind of trend. Well, first of all, Sepp Blatter was also played by the same Brit as played Linda B. Johnson, Tim Roth. So that's an asterisk in that horrible FIFA movie. This was one of those. Yeah, I would. I don't think he's cherry picking examples there. But this was one of those articles where all of the supporting evidence. I I went into it. Oh, I am not buying the premise. I think you could probably make have made this case a number of times over the past number of years, and then it's always corrected. And during the era when we say there are no movie stars anymore, it's just. Schwarzenegger and it's just uh, uh, Stallone that was soon thereafter we got great actors Robert Downey Jr. Matt Damon if you think he's great Jamie Foxx really good actors who are now turning over 40 Philip Seymour Hoffman let's put him in that category so great actors came along but the thing I was going to say is I didn't buy the premise I was disagreeing with it all his supporting evidence is actually rather strong, and yet at the end, I still didn't buy the premise. So I think it's uh, a question of, you know, a syllogism logically where the premises don't line up to the conclusion, but it was an interesting argument at least to consider. All right. Well, listen, Dana, I want to get to you as soon as possible uh, because you'll have the most interesting things to say about this being a film critic. But Mike, I want to press you on this a little bit. Something changed in the NBA to use a pretty direct analogy, which is that at a certain point, foreign-born players flooded into the league, and it was impossible not to notice that they had coaching of a kind and style that the American player had really lost, hence their value to NBA teams. Isn't that a meaningful difference? Except for the fact that it hasn't happened with female actors. At least according to his article. But I also would subscribe to that when he lists the great female actors under 40, that seems like a plausible list. And when you try to list the great male actors, you come up with Jake Gyllenhaal. Is he great? Maybe. Channing Tatum, not great, but you want to watch him. And Ryan Gosling, who, greatest sentence in the article. It's important to keep in mind here that Ryan Gosling is Canadian. It's always important <laughs> to keep that in mind. Always wake with that maxim always. in mind. Yeah, as I was reading this, I mean, honestly, to me, this is the kind of article that's fun to read so that you can argue about it. But I thought that his premise was kind of complete bullshit. I mean, first of all, I guess that what he's laying down here is that American actors don't have Shakespearean training and British actors do. Absolutely true. But that's always been true. That That's not something that's a trend that he's spotting in the last decade or two in films, right? That's essentially from the beginning of American cinema. There's been this tension between the Laurence Olivier's, right, who used to do accents less skillfully than they do now, American accents. But you know, the Australians, the Brits have been kind of taking over the thespian scene for a while. So that I discard based on its non-originality. Then he, I think he's cherry picking like crazy. He makes no mention of Oscar Isaac, who's one of the most exciting actors of the last decade, I would say, who's, I guess, by his, you know, by Rafferty's logic, you could say is not American because he was born in Guatemala, but he was completely raised in the U.S. and clearly identifies as a U.S. citizen and a U.S. actor. Um, Jesse Eisenberg, who he dismisses with the sentence, oh, he only takes parts that make him look gloomy. 
Well, Rafferty then goes on a few paragraphs later to say, why don't actors take darker roles and explore darker characters? That's exactly what Jesse Eisenberg has always done, picked weird indie movies in which he plays someone sort of strange and unlikable. Now he's about to play a villain in a, in a Marvel movie, I believe. But here's some of the names that popped to my mind when he said, there are no American young actors below 40 who are interesting at all. Channing Tatum, Michael B. Douglas, who he does mention and make an exception for, Oscar Isaac, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who he dismisses on the basis of the material he's been doing, not his actual skill as an actor, Chadwick Boseman who has done two great biopics in the last few years and is really up and coming. And then Jesse Eisenberg was my last one. I'm sure I could think of others as well. But I just felt like in order to make this this argument, he was discarding huge hunks of surrounding cinema culture. But to make an argument about a trend isn't to say that it's without exceptions. And secondly, I don't understand the resist. I mean, I understand why declinists and such moon calves are pains in the asses and should be generally <laughs> disregarded because they've always been around uh, since the beginning of time uh, telling us there hasn't been a good writer since Homer. But nonetheless, sometimes things do change and sometimes things do decline. And I, uh, the names that you've mentioned are all good actors. I wouldn't say any of them has had a particularly career-defining or iconic role to this point in their career, which at this point in their career was true of both De Niro and Pacino. But movies were better than I think it's about material as well. I mean, of course, these guys are taking shittier roles. There are shittier movies being made on the whole, I would say, by Hollywood. Okay, but then it's worth talking about. I mean, I think it's a combination of many separate but converging trends, the first of which is the decline in the material, the need for people to don superhero suits, and the decline of kind of the mid-budget serious film in which someone might really do serious screen work. I think secondly, while it's true that American actors have not been Shakespearean actors, it's not entirely true that they weren't first on the stage as Bogart, who spent six or seven years on the stage before he ever really seriously went out to Hollywood. I think there's probably too much of an emphasis perhaps on movie star charisma and slightly less or far less. And Pacino is in the theater uh, first as well, far less on technique. And, you know, the argument being made by Spike Lee specifically, but uh, Michael Douglas as well, and, and by Rafferty himself, is that there's an absence of technique in American actors' performances. I think the third thing is exactly what we're getting at in the Magic Mike movies, which is that there is a kind of crisis of masculinity. I mean, you, I think Channing Tatum is a great exception to this because not only is he an American, you could not imagine another culture producing Channing Tatum as he is. He is so quintessentially an American male, but he has a little bit of the, and he has to do this, and it's part of his charm, but he has a little bit of the Brian Williams syndrome, which is, you know, Brian Williams both was a stiff as a board, solid, solid anchorman, and he was winking at you saying, I'm I'm also an ironist, and I also inhabit this role with a degree of self-consciousness. Channing Tatum is a bro in exactly that same way. Channing Tatum doesn't really disappear into his roles as an actor so much as, you know, as many movie stars do, play Channing Tatum playing a bro. I think that there's, in addition to the decline of the material, the lack of technique relative to charisma, there's also a crisis about how men are supposed to act, and that's being reflected in roles. I, I mean, I, I'm going to come back with an answer about at least three of the actors I just named who have, I would argue, had a career-defining role and something that has sort of elevated them above, you know, just playing the, the villain or the nice guy or the romantic lead or whatever. Jesse Eisenberg in The Social Network, Oscar Isaac in Inside Lewin Davis, and Channing Tatum in both the Magic Mike movies. 
I I subscribe to uh, what Steve is saying because I think that you're right. For an American actor to establish himself, it does seem that he has to have be a hunky guy in genre material first, and then maybe he can establish himself. Or it doesn't have to be necessarily hunky, but have be a certain kind of type, be a movie star. You have to establish your credentials as a movie star, and then maybe, like Jake Gyllenhaal, you could branch into interesting material, where it seems to me, it is my perspective, that the English way of doing it is you establish yourself as someone who could play Shakespeare and then you could move on. You don't have to move on to interesting material. It's already interesting. So it's an easier leap to make. Now, when he starts uh, recasting The Godfather entirely with foreign or British actors, on the one hand, it's a little unfair because he starts taking his whole theory is that the American actor under 40 is in bad shape and he recasts it with people like Daniel Day-Lewis as Don Corleone, all right, over 40, and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Tom Hagen. But some of these other choices, Tom Hiddleston, who I think is great. I don't know if there's an American equivalent of him right now. Ben, uh, I don't know who that guy is, actually. Ben Wisha, who, ben played, w- who played Keats in that wonderful Keats movie we talked about. Oh, right, Isn't right, he right. supposed to be Fredo in Terrence Rafferty's yes, fevered yes, reimagining yes, of The Godfather? Yes. And one guy that he also left out is Michael Sheen from Masters of Sex and right. who played so he's another great I don't know if he's he's probably around 40 but he's another great English actor but we could just as easily have a thought experiment where we recast The Godfather with American actors or Australian actors I don't I don't get why Terrence Rafferty's recasting of it is supposed to convince uh, us because of I don't think you would come up with as good a cast I mean I think that's game set match right there I think if you had to make it with all American actors or make it or or make it with all uh, foreign-born actors, you would have a better movie with the latter, which is a sad comment. And it also doesn't... What about the fact that it doesn't work the other way? Americans are not conquering the English uh, dramas, except maybe Jeremy Piven in The Selfridge Show, but they had to cast an American as Selfridge. Right, and here we go. Here we go. We're about to make an iconic film uh, about Steve Jobs, and we have to go get a German-Irish actor to play him. I mean, I just think that that's extraordinary. I really don't think that that would have been true as recently as 15 years ago. Okay, but let's also realize that this is the world becoming flat. I mean, part of this is the greater economic. I was just going to say, trend. isn't it just globalization? Yeah. So, oh fast man, you outtrend thought me. <laughs> I believe it. Oh, fuck, checkmate. I mean, look, I, I will not contest Terence Rafferty's basic premise that most British actors have more thespian-like stage training; that they are taught to speak Shakespeare more convincingly than American actors are. That's why you know Keanu Reeves and Much Ado About Nothing is like a, a, a camp role. I mean, there is certainly a greater tradition of a, a training for an actor in Britain than there is in the U.S. And what we have here is the method, which is now falling somewhat out of fashion or is mm. practiced in mm-hmm. so many splintered ways that it doesn't quite mean anything to be method anymore. All that is an interesting road to go down. But I don't think that it, it syncs up with this decline narrative I he's trying to construct. I, I think you've really hit the nail on the head, Dana. I really think you do. I think... You had an early period of movie stardom in the early history, relatively early history of Hollywood, and it coughed up this totally new thing called the movie star. And it was by necessity, it was going to be heavily Americanized. But then you had this next phase in which the method was a huge, our way of compensating for our lack of a deep Shakespearean sort of stage history. And so much was the pressure to go and study with a series, you know, with Lee Strasberg or um, I'm forgetting the woman's name, Stella, Stella Adler, uh, that uh, Marilyn Monroe would do it. You know, James Dean did it. Uh, of course, Brando is the great pioneer. And this was a new and distinctively American thing. And it required, if not a discipline of diction and carriage, it uh, required a, an emotional and interior discipline that was really thought of as quite serious. And I don't think there's any such 
centering magnetic force the center of American acting anymore. And it's reflected in what Rafferty is getting at. And I would say if there were, if I had to pick only three actors and I'd watch all their movies for the rest of their career, at least two of them would be foreign. I'd pick Benedict Cumberbatch. I think I'd watch that guy in anything. And I think I'd pick Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> that guy is mm-hmm. amazing and can do it. Now, maybe I'd pick Jake Gyllenhaal as a third, but when you factor in the fact that we are a country of 300 million and we're dealing with, well, the English-speaking part of Europe mostly, although maybe that's uh, casting it too small. I don't even... It's It seems that America is underperforming with our young actors, though, like I said in the beginning, I do think the trend easily reverses itself as it has in the past. I think he vastly overrates, by the way, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in Nightcrawler, but that's a subject for another day. All right. Well, the article is in the Atlantic Monthly. It's called The Decline of the American Actor. It's by a film a writer who I've admired for a long time, Terrence Rafferty. Check it out. I'm very, this is one of those arguments, Dana and Mike, that we have that will generate a lot of mail and a lot of uh, activity on the Facebook page. We welcome it, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Moving on. This is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? You know, this week I'm going to go with something that we almost did as a topic this week. Um, it was it was down between the documentary on Nina Simone and another documentary about a female musician, the new Amy Winehouse movie that just opened in theaters. And I, I love the Amy Winehouse movie. And because we didn't do it as a topic, I'll, I'll do it as an endorsement. So even if you are not in particular a, a fan or listener to Amy Winehouse, as it happens in my case, the year 2006 that she broke in the U.S., when Back to Black, her big album, broke in the U.S., 2006. I believe the very month that it broke in the U.S. was when I had my child, my baby. So, you know, I barely remember that year at all. It's all a blur. But there was some sort of Amy Winehouse pop playing in the background. Anyway, that was essentially my knowledge of her, like a British singer with a great voice who came on the scene and then almost immediately became this very sad tabloid figure and subsequently died. But now, having seen the documentary Amy, I love Amy Winehouse and I want to listen to all of her music, of which there's not very much. She only released two studio albums. And it's all because this documentary is so well put together. And I think all of the things that I was saying about the Nina Simone documentary that it could have done better are things that, you know, whoever put Amy together thought about more carefully. Obviously, she had a much shorter life and career, and she didn't have, you know, this political activist side. It's a completely different kind of story. But she was someone who came up in the age of social media and digital media and who filmed along with her friends almost every moment of her daily life. And so there's so much footage of just what it was like to be Amy Winehouse during the years, basically from her late teens when she started to be discovered by music executives until she died at age 27. And the way that that footage is put together and crafted along with full entire performances from concerts, which is something that music documentaries do far too seldom, right? Show you an entire song beginning to end. Um, it's just so artfully done. And she just comes across as such a, a genuine musician, you know, just somebody who lived, ate and breathed music and who just died far, far before she contributed everything that she could have. Asifkapadia is the director. That's of that right. Movie. Who made Senna? Did you see that great documentary about the Brazilian Formula One driver yeah, Senna? Yeah, he and, made I, that too. and and he came in. Uh, reading about him, he came in really not knowing much about her music, and I think that sounds like it served him because it was as he discovered, and he didn't feel like he had to hit certain stations of the cross. Right. I mean, it could so easily be a behind the music feeling thing, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the she lived that right template she, she, of a life. She yeah. completely lived so that that no classic yeah. you know music biopic, and yet it has none of that kind of sordid wallowing and reveling in her drug excesses or something like that. It really shows her as a full human and just a really lovely person. Hmm. 
Uh, I'm so psyched to watch that. Uh, and I'm sorry we couldn't do it this week. Mike, what do you have? So I want to endorse four funny things. Last week I heard you guys talking about Lost World, Jurassic Park, Lost World. So two of my endorsements are things my sons whispered to me, actually a little too loud, drawing laughter. And they were both doing the pterodactyl attack in that movie. So at one point, a pterodactyl, someone is blithely walking down the street, and the pterodactyl comes in, unbeknownst to the person, attacks them. My oldest son Milo leans over and goes, I guess the P really is silent. I looked at him like, that is a sophisticated <laughs> joke. Good job. The other one is a real mouths of babe moment. So there was, spoiler alert, they're attacked by pterodactyls. <laughs> and uh, da- Bryce Dallas Howard, am I getting right. the name right? Shoots a pterodactyl and then Chris Pratt kisses and they kiss during the pterodactyl attack. And my six-year-old Emmett shouts out, why are you kissing? There's a pterodactyl attack. And it brought the house down. So good job. Now, two other professional. Two mini pescas on the way up. Yes. Two other uh, funny things people who are paid for. I want to endorse the works of Alexander Petri, who is a columnist for the Washington Post, which doesn't seem like a thing a 27-year-old would be doing, but she is. And she got some acclaim when uh, a story either went viral or just went viral on my Twitter feed because I'm into flags. She gave a critique of every state flag. And it was rather funny. She has a new book out called The Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Extremely funny. And Simon Rich. Do you read Simon Rich, Frank? Sometimes. Yeah. He's been um, excerpted in The New Yorker. And his new collection is Spoiled Brats. Really, as as far as writing hysterical short fiction, I think no one's better right now than Simon Rich. Hmm. I think, Mike, I, uh, it's fair to say I'm off the hook forever for how many multiple endorsements I do in any given show. Yeah. Well, I need the outlet. I wish I had my own podcast. Oh, wait, I do. <laughs> and I've interviewed Simon Rich and Alexander Petrioni. <laughs> uh, someone's got to get you a soapbox. Okay. All right. Well, I, I promise I won't do five. Um, I'll just do one and a half, really, which is I know that I did a long Bell and Sebastian oration last week or the week before, but I'm going to do a follow-up, which is that um, the band was actually started by two people. It was started by Stuart Murdoch, the impish genius at the heart of it uh, now, but also by another guy named another Scottish Stuart named Stuart David, who was the bassist and would-be songwriter as part of the band, who a few years in, I think three, four, five years in, left the band, started his own band called Looper, and um, never achieved quite the same success as, as Bell and Sebastian. He has now written a memoir about the one year leading up to the creation of an, uh, the first Bell and Sebastian album, Tiger Milk. It's called In the All Night Cafe, and it gets into the fun, weird, riff-raffy culture out of which the band came, but it really is is an examination of the difference between talent and genius. And over the course of it, without really saying it outright, he realizes that he has talent, but Stuart Murdoch has genius, and that that's unbridgeable. And um, without really any discernible self-pity, it's just about what it's like to see someone who has it who has this thing that you think you can sweat your way to and then you come face to face with who forces you to come face to face with the fact that you won't and um i like how inscrutable he portrays this fact about someone because i think it ultimately is somewhat unexaminable it's Um, like amadeus in glasgow what you're talking about it's very similar to that and you know he creates a good rock and roll band and writes an elegant memoir and it's wonderful but there's just this thing some people have it's an ability i guess to attach to something totally idiosyncratic within yourself and then link it up with some untangled nerve ending out in the world and how 
how how does that happen? I mean, it's a mystery to all the rest of us who are damned to ordinariness, I suppose. But I thought it was a lovely, modest, in the best sense of the word, book, and uh, I highly recommend it. And I really like Looper. I mean, the irony is he started a very good rock band, but not a great one, but a really, really fun, cool one. So highly recommended both Looper. I'll find the name of the album I like best by them. We'll put it on the web. All right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, subbing in for Julia Turner. It was my pleasure. I will now go put my shirt back on. (laughs) And Dana, as always, a total pleasure. As always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our interns are Lindsay Albrecht and Marissa Vichy. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Mike Pesca and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Just in time.